The Gist is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. It's Tuesday, July 22nd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know about this guy, Bill Hillman. He was the one who wrote a book, How Not to Be Gored by a Bull. And then wouldn't you know it, he won the Idaho State Lottery. No, he got gored by a bull. That is how dramatic sentence structure works, people. Anyway, El Goro is capitalizing on his newfound fame. And by fame, I mean being the answer to the question, hey, you hear about the idiot? Which idiot? The guy who got gored by the bull. He's the idiot who found the least efficient way to install a new pocket ever. But there he was in the Washington Post writing a first-person essay, I got gored in Pamplona, but I will run with the bulls again. To which the bulls reacted, bring it on, brother. News outlets picked up the story. It was a classic American can-do, can-do stupid things over and over again story. But he is getting far in front of the story, unlike with, say, the bull. You know, he's, he's grabbing the tiger by the tail. He's grabbing the kangaroo by the pouch. I can't really think of another animal-related metaphor for seizing the opportunity. But just the other day, we get this email from Consortium Booksellers. So they're, they're independent publishers. They try to promote books. It's very hard for an author to get attention. And they're dealing with the little guy. Their guy is Bill Hillman. And they're touting the fact that he was interviewed everywhere, right? ABC, NBC, all things considered. Which is fine for that one guy. But imagine the pressure on every other author on that list, right? I don't know, I thought my harrowing tale of love and intrigue set against a backdrop of war-ravaged Budapest might do pretty well on its own. Well, is there a bull-goring angle? Nope, next. And I go through the list of books, and my reaction is, The Still Lives of Paul Cezanne. Not gored by a bull. The Congress of Vienna, Power and Politics After Napoleon. Not gored by a bull. Walter Lippmann, Public Economist. Private dude who was never gored by a bull. Frank O'Hara's lunch poems. The Poetry Foundation said Frank O'Hara's personal rituals culminate in love, not only for the poet, but also the reader. But for the podcaster, they culminate in not getting gored by a bull. So that is a through line with today's show. No one has been gored by a bull. In the spiel, I will take a turn for the classical and a couple of interviews about the Gaza conflict, Operation Protective Edge. What's with that name? And now, who gets to be considered a civilian? Let's state the obvious. No one likes to see dead children. So begins an essay in today's Wall Street Journal by author and senior fellow at the NYU Law School, Thane Rosenbaum. In the second sentence, Rosenbaum clarifies, actually Hamas likes to see dead children, quote, they would prefer those children to be Jewish, but there is greater value to them if they are Palestinian. Then Rosenbaum goes on to question if the so-called civilian dead actually should be considered civilians. Under such maddening circumstances are the adults, in a legal and moral sense, actual civilians. He points out that the people of Gaza overwhelmingly elected Hamas and then says, on some basic level, you forfeit your right to be called civilians when you freely elect members of a terrorist organization. Then Rosenbaum, thank you for joining me. 
Thank you, Mike. So why isn't it enough to say that Israel's in the right, Israel must defend itself, and the tragic death of civilians is ultimately not something on Israel's hands, but it is the tragic death of civilians nonetheless? Yes, there's no question. Uh, (laughs) Israel would prefer to be killing nobody. Israel would prefer to just live in peace. They've never been able to do that throughout their entire history. No other nation would be put in their position where they would be fighting with their hands tied behind their back in an impossible asymmetrical situation where they're actually fighting people that are all wearing the same clothes, tightly packed into the same area, and where a large number of the people popularly elected Hamas to be their designated representatives, knowing full well that this was a terrorist outfit bent on destroying Israel, and that Israel has a, a long history of, of retaliation. And yes, it's a horrible result. The disproportionate death isn't Israel's fault. You know, the, the fact that the rockets aren't hitting Israelis and not killing them at equal numbers, we wouldn't be having this conversation if the loss wasn't disproportionate. Well, I think you actually go further than Netanyahu, and I come back to your phrase, on some basic level, you forfeit your right to be called civilians, because Netanyahu calls them civilians. He says things like Hamas uses their civilians as human shields. He says Hamas is hiding behind civilians, but he doesn't say they're not civilians. And when I think about your statement that when you elect members of a terrorist organization as statesmen, I don't know that troubles me in terms of disqualifying someone as as a civilian or thinking about them as someone other than a civilian because of a vote they cast in a democratic election. And inviting them into their homes for their base of operations. I mean, come on, Mike, you elect a terrorist organization, and then you say, yes, it's perfectly fine for you to operate out of my apartment right next to my children, and I'm so prepared in this cause that I'm prepared to sacrifice my own children. How is that not a level of complicity that puts you more in the less in a position of an innocent civilian and someone who's really playing a role of a kind of quasi-soldier? Right, but you wrote the myth of moral justice. You have thought deeply about questions of morality and justice. Sure, there are definitely some dead civilians who what you just described, that applies to. But there are certainly some who either elected Hamas because they were sick of Fatah not delivering anything, who elected Hamas by mistake, who elected Hamas as a protest vote, who are among the 40% of Palestinians who didn't even elect Hamas, whose maybe neighbors voted for Hamas. And at what point does a vote, a bad vote, a misguided vote, an ignorant vote, mean that you lose your status as a civilian? But you read that, my paragraph. I don't limit it just to voting. I say if you're voting... If you're inviting people over for dinner and letting them stay there while they're in the middle of a war and operating out of your house, that's very, very different. Hamas is extremely unpopular if you look at Pew polls. Also, Hamas has a military leadership who really wants the war and a political leadership who we're told is not actually in favor of the war and the political leadership is more in Gaza and the military leadership might be in places like Syria. You add that all together and then you have the question of coercion. And sure, there are definitely some dead people who are among the civilian count who fit your description. But when you add everything else up, the people who feel coerced into it, the people who feel they have no other choice, the people who are ignorant, I don't know why it helps so much to point out that some of the number of hundreds of civilians really shouldn't be considered civilians. What is it 50 of them? Is it 75 of them? I don't have an idea what the number is. My guess it's higher because 
the Palestinian Authority could could have been in control of Gaza. It ended up not being because they were roundly defeated in the election. And this is, look, the real moral dilemma are the people who didn't vote, uh, are not card-carrying loyalists, have tried every way possible to get out of the way rather than to put themselves within the line of fire, but to get out of the way. And that's, to me, the people for whom the sympathy really should lie. This, to me, is the moral dilemma. And this, I believe, if the Israelis could identify which ones they were, (laughs) they would do everything to rescue them. But the question is, how can they do that? So I will read, I mean, when you say you didn't read it, you mean out loud, I'm sure, because you know I read it. But no, no, of course yes, you read it. Of course. I mean, Surely, to, to, yeah, so I'll read it. to your podcast audience. <laughs> Surely there are civilians who have been killed in this conflict who have taken every step to distance themselves from this fast-moving war zone, and children whose parents are not card-carrying Hamas loyalists. And my contention here is that you, I don't know what the number is, you don't know what the number is, but I think in terms of what we define as a civilian casualty, it's better to have a definition more like non-combatants, people who haven't picked up arms. And it doesn't matter what the sympathies, where the sympathies, voting or not voting, of civilians lie. We go down a slippery and dangerous slope if we stop counting as tragic and civilian tragedies, people who never picked up arms in a conflict and didn't ask to be killed in the conflict. Picking up arms can mean any number of things. It doesn't actually mean picking up a weapon. I'll say it again. If you order me not to bring my children outside of the home because the bomb is coming, I I will even offer up my children. It's behavior. And does that happen most of the time? Is this most of the civilians who've died? I don't know. I've never been to Gaza, Mike. I don't know. I know, I know that I know what gets reported, and nobody is making those distinctions. Even the most sympathetic to Gaza is saying, well, it's only a tiny number of Gazans that really do this. I've never heard that, Mike, so neither you nor I know the number, but I don't think it's a minority. Okay, I I don't know if it's a minority, and I don't... And again, the essay that clearly implies that most of the people we consider civilians shouldn't be considered civilians. The usefulness of that is, to me, is lost on me. Well, and the usefulness of saying that every every Palestinian loss versus an Israeli loss means that the Israelis have no right to defend themselves and are in a position that they shouldn't because of the loss of civilian life. And that is also an equally untenable position. Not the United States wouldn't do it. Canada wouldn't do it. Mexico, no other country would have done it. But you seem to be asking Israel to do it. No, I'm not asking Israel to do it. That's All right, so then I don't know what it is that you're asking them to do. If they can't identify the real supporters of Hamas from not because of all sorts of reasons that you're saying we can never know, what can they do? I'm simply offering up another way to understand what it means to be an innocent civilian. Not all civilians are automatically innocent. Okay. That's fine. Let's leave it there. Okay. Thane Rosenbaum, senior fellow at New York University School of Law, has written an essay in the Wall Street Journal, Hamas's Civilian Death Strategy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And the gist is sponsored by Audible. Here are some nice things about Audible. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from in every genre. There's the app that you could use very easily on iPhones, Android, or Windows. And you can download and listen on 500 different kinds of MP3 players, an iPhone, an Android, an iPod, all that stuff. They have Whisper Sync for voice, so you could listen to it and switch back to the Kindle and then listen to it. And it's reading. It's all reading. It all counts as reading. 
There's chapter navigation. There's annotated book notes. There's sleep mode. There's button-free mode. So you want to try Audible? You get a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial. So I am recommending that you try it. What we'd like you to do is to go to audiblepodcast.com slash slategist. There is also a guarantee that if you don't like the book you choose, don't worry. You could exchange any book you're not happy with for another title. No questions asked. So we're in the second week of Operation Protective Edge, which is the third iteration of a conflict in Gaza that has played out in similar forms. Before this operation, there was Operation Pillar of Defense, and before that, Operation Cast Lead. There are other smaller operation names interspersed, like Returning Echo and Operation Brothers Keeper. And all the names, of course, are originally in Hebrew, and they would evoke different things to an Israeli than they do to an American. In fact, they'd even have different English translations, depending on who you'd listen to. So right now we're going to talk to Dr. Dahlia Gavrili Nuri, who teaches at Hadassah Academic College, where she's an expert in peace and war discourse. Hello, Dr. Gavrili Nuri. Thank you for being with us. Hello. Hello. How are you? So here in the uh, U.S. papers and U.S. media, Operation Protective Edge is what they call it. Is that in the English-speaking precincts of Israel what they've been calling it, or is there a different name for this operation? Okay, this is a very interesting point, because the, the Hebrew name for the current operation translates as strong cliff, a reference to nature. Like the names of 35%, around 35% of Israeli military campaigns since the state's establishment in 1948. Mm-hmm. And I think that using natural forces, Remove the responsibility of leaders. Nobody is responsible when you are sitting under, let's say, a volcano or when you are taking part in a military operation that's called strong cliff. I think that uh, this is maybe a psychological process, this naming, this kind of naming, that helps the people that are involved in a conflict or in an operation to survive the situation and it's harsh results. The last operation of this type was, I believe, called in English, in the American press, Operation Pillar of Defense. Would that have a different translation or a different connotation to someone mm-hmm. who... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, tell me about that one. It's interesting that the English version is, is so different because in Hebrew, this it's called um, Pillar of Cloud. Mm-hmm. Once again, it comes from nature. It also has a biblical association. So pillar of cloud, that would be from uh, Exodus, from the Torah, where a pillar of clouds guided the Israelites from Egypt and to the Promised Land. It would strike every Israeli as being so blatantly evocative of the biblical justifications for what they were doing. And the fact that this was translated into something other than pillar of cloud, but the fact that this was translated to pillar of defense for American ears, what does that tell you? I think that I understand why it's not translated with the biblical association to English. Because in Israel... We let's say that all secular and religious people alike learned for at least 10 years a Bible. It's part of our mandatory curricula. Every Israeli, every Jewish Israeli knows or familiar with this meaning. 
And Operation Cast Lead was in December 2008, January 2009, during Hanukkah. Correct. There are so many associations with the, the Hebrew name. The Hebrew name, I'll just say briefly, that it re- reminds Jewish Israelis with the Maccabean uh, that uh, uh, fought the Greek, Antiochus. And it reminds us of a children's song. It reminds us of happiness and lights that are connected to Hanukkah. Was it because the Hanukkah dreidel was cast out of lead in a way that bullets are cast out of lead? Was, but was it a dreidel reference? The Hanukkah dreidel, the Savivon in Hebrew, yeah. it is part of the song, of the uh, children's song about Hanukkah. The poet of this song is Chaim Nachman Bialik, who is one of the most famous and uh, Zionist poets. So you see that all this association in the name Operation Castellated. So in the U.S. in 1972, the Department of Defense issued guidelines about the names of operations because some there used to be just nonsense names or sometimes very aggressive names like Operation Werewolf. And there was uh, during the Vietnam War things like Operation Ripper and Killer. And uh, Department of Defense says that um, when naming operations, names should not express a degree of bellicosity inconsistent with traditional American ideals or current foreign policy or convey connotations offensive to good taste or derogatory to a particular group, sect, or creed. So even though Israel doesn't have to follow the Department of Defense recommendations, they do, because it's just good sense in rallying a citizenry and evoking either a history, a shared cultural history, or religious history, and getting people behind an operation. It seems like that's what's going on. Especially for a controversial war. However, I can't remember uh, such a consensus around an, a military operation. The name, I think, uh, it's a good name. All right. Well, Dr. Dalia Gavrielli Nuri is a professor who's also an expert at peace and war discourse. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Today, I entered the subway and was met by a violinist playing this. Which is Mozart, a little night music. Eine kleine Nachtmusik. And what it should put me in the mind of is, I don't know, G major, petticoats, wigs, Tom Hulse, the night, music, or a very special Proustian memory, the first time I ever tasted Keebler Vienna fingers. But it didn't. All I could think about when I heard it was, Rough house, a game of rough house. You don't pass go and your older brother socks you. There's no such thing as a friendly game of rough house. I don't even know if that's how the lyrics to this jingle went. It was a commercial for a board game when I was eight. So thank you, Parker Brothers. Thank you for your discontinued board game that has ruined Mozart for me. And for TV viewers younger than me, the beautiful night music wasn't rough house. It was commercials for Nickelodeon. Looney Tunes, you'll find them all on Nick. Lots of stuff, enough to make you sick. Psycho. This happens all the time. It happened to Carmen. Bizet, right, wrong, Beyonce, and this commercial for Pepsi. It's a sensation he loves so well. Now this morning he starts to yell. His Pepsi fell. His Pepsi's lost. The joy of life he needs a
clear why advertisers do this. The songs are great and the songs are free. Public domain meets lyrics about a taste sensation. Don't get me wrong. I do not think that classical music should be totally off limits for use for inspiring future artists for mashups. The greats, I mean. I know Wagner inspired some bad stuff, but he also inspired Elmer Fudd. Kill the wabbit. So of course I love that. I think it should exist. I'm glad it exists. I think it is an improvement and a comment on Wagner. And I believe that fair use should be vastly expanded and that artists should have great leeway to riff on the works that came before them. But when it's in the service of a jingle, those jingle makers need to feel a little bit of shame. When you take, and I'm going to say it, desecrate a great song to sell your board game or fizzy beverage or cable service. Remember this one to Ode to Joy? Movies, 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 movies. I mean, inspired conversations like Beethoven. Come on, you know Beethoven. No, what did he write? He wrote Ode to Joy? Huh? You know, movies, movies, movies. Of course, movies, movies. He got me to watch Die Hard too. Beethoven. This phenomenon, it's not exactly the Taliban exploding ancient Buddha statues. It's far worse. Here, a cute girl playing the piano in a McDonald's ad from the 80s. Ludwig von, meet your Taliban. And I would eat my fries myself and not give any to my dumb brother. Hands off and mine off. So, simple idea. Advertisers, marketers, jingleers. You can use Bach or Brahms or Rachmaninoff. We just might sing along. We're probably going to still buy your products because that's how our simple reptilian minds work. But just expect that when we hear the real song and we think not of the great composers or of the saucy factory girl slaying the bold Toreador with but a glance, but when we think of Pepsi and cheeseburgers, we're going to hate you a little bit. And I hope you suffer. Suffer like the half million casualties of the Napoleonic War in 1812. Or like those people in the subway commercial whose buttons pop from eating hamburgers. And that's it for today's show. Perhaps you've seen producer Andrea Salenzi, author of How Not to Be Tricked by a Clever Shark, being interviewed about the time last week when she was bamboozled by a clever shark. Andy Bowers, in addition to being executive producer of Slate Podcasts, maintains both the Gingivitis Helpline and Dental Flossopedia. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. You can listen in Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, stuff like that. To get the daily email, go to slate.com slash gist email. Sign up right there and we'll send it to you. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. I'm going to, I'll throw this out there. Facebook is a good place for it. Any other ads that turn classical music into jingles that you can think of? There was this Huggies commercial also about knocked music that I couldn't find a video of, but maybe you remember it. If you want to email us, we're at thegist at slate.com. And I'd like to direct you to my lecture tapes on why sincerity and appreciation is for the week. And thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.